0: Hello, My name is Matthew Rafferty, host of American Studies on the New Book Network. I'm here today with John McMillan, author of Beatles vs. Stones, which first came out in 2013 uh, and just recently in paperback on Simon & Schuster. Professor McMillan is an associate professor of history at Georgia State University. He's the author of 2001's Smoking Typewriters, the 60s Underground Press... Hello, my name is Matthew Rafferty, host of American Studies on the New Book Network. I'm here today with John McMillan, author of Beatles vs. Stones, which first came out in 2013 uh, and just recently in paperback on Simon & Schuster. Professor McMillan is an associate professor of history at Georgia State University. He's the author of 2001's Smoking Typewriters, the 60s Underground Press and the Rise of Alternative Media in America. Uh, And he's the co-editor of two volumes, The Radical Reader and The New Left Revisited. And he's also uh, an editor of the journal, the 60s, a journal of history, politics and culture. I also want to say uh, personally, it's a particular pleasure to talk to John because we overlapped during our dra- graduate studies at Columbia University, uh, where Professor McMillan received his Ph.D. Um, so first, I want to welcome you to the New Book Network. Uh, Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And um, before we delve into uh uh, the Beatles versus Stones, I'd like the listeners to learn a little bit about you. Um, where are you from, and how did you uh, first become interested, particularly in the history of the 1960s?
1: Well, I was born and raised in Michigan, and my family moved around a lot, but mostly to different locations in Michigan. And then, uh, you know, growing up, I was in sort of a small town, and, you know, there was no Internet, there, was no, there were no zines, it was kind of hard to sort of, Build a connection with what seemed like an alternative, any kind of subculture that was, you know, present at the time. But I, I really glommed on to the 60s as sort of a layperson. So all through high school, I had a, a layperson's interest in the Black Panthers and Abby Hoffman and Charles Manson, even though that sounds a little bit weird. Um, but I never really thought that that would be something I'd studied professionally. I, I did a cognate in African-American studies at Michigan State, and then when I met you at Columbia... Uh, I was initially planning on on doing something on the historiography of slavery for uh, for a PhD dissertation, uh, but I took a, a research seminar with Alan Brinkley, who became my advisor, and uh, and it became clear sort of in the mid '90s when I was starting graduate school. That the first generation of historians uh, who were too young to have sort of experienced the 60s politically in any meaningful way you know, were beginning to write about it. So there was a cohort of people who were, you know, just a few years older than me, really, who I thought were kind of trailblazers as, as young historians of the new left and the counterculture. And that really excited me. So I did a, I just did a, a, a paper in the seminar for, for Alan Brigley and I liked the direction that was going. And it seemed to me there was a lot of, uh, primary source material that hadn't really been examined or scrutinized yet by, by professional historians. And so I made the switch right around then and, and haven't really looked back too much. Now, nowadays I'm trying to branch into the 1970s a bit, but I've been identified with the 60s for a long time.
0: Um. I think particularly doing um, doing kind of the history of the new left is, is sort of a tricky thing because so many people who were participants ended up in academia and were kind of, it's very much a generation that, that sort of sought to write its own history and start sought to do analysis of its own movements. Is that, I mean, I think, as you said, there's sort of um, an advantage to being that next generation that doesn't have mm-hmm. personal memory or that kind of skin in the game. Um, but is that also a challenge because, you know, it's not like, I mean, I'm a 19th century historian, so everybody's dead, so nobody can get mad at me. <laughs> right. Um, right. but is, is, is that a challenge when you're, you know, working not just with, you know, more recent history, but with a recent history where so many of the participants are there in the academy?
1: Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're correct that, you know, uh, obviously an uncanny number of, of people who played Big roles in the leadership of the new left went on to become professors, whether in sociology or history or, or whatever else. And people like James Miller and Todd Gitlin and uh, uh, um, Michael Kazin, Maurice Isterman and others, you know, are all big, influential scholars in the field Um and I think when I was early early on in my career, I had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder in this this sense that maybe these you know participant observers of the new left were relying too heavily on their own idiosyncratic memories and that maybe they saw themselves as professional gatekeepers and they didn't they were resistant to newer interpretations and then that hasn't really been my experience now that I've had some more time to to think about it, so I can't say it had a lot of I can't say it's been terribly difficult, you know, writing about a topic that many people remember uh firsthand. At least from at least from a scholarly perspective. Oftentimes uh I'll meet older people and then I will hear from people who are, you know, sixties veterans who tell me that, you know, that's just not the way it was and, and they seem to be relying pretty heavily on their their own, you know, experience and not really looking at the breadth of evidence that I've studied. Uh but I'm doubtless it hasn't been not too hard.
0: Well, that's encouraging. Um in what ways did, did your previous projects working on the new left and particularly on sort of the rise of alternative media, um, lead you to this project to, to looking seriously, right. particularly at the media presentation of the Beatles and the Stones? I mean, this, I think it's fair to say that, um, maybe not, you know, the most essential piece, but a really central piece of this book's heft is about kind of, the way these bands interact with media, the way media portrays these bands um, is, Mm -hmm. you know, was that a kind of site of linkage that that led to this? How how did you end up doing a book? Yeah,
1: sure. Sure. Well, uh, you know, so as you mentioned, my first book was based on my dissertation with smoking typewriters. And that was on the uh, underground newspapers in the late 1960s. And when I was researching that uh, book, I came across a, you know, a lot of really interesting material that I couldn't, uh, include. It was dealing with the the, the debate over which band had the better, what, whether the Beatles or the Rolling Stones had the correct political analysis in the late sixties. And, uh, I read about this in, in the book. The Beatles were seen as kind of a, you know, more aligned with the flower power of the hippies and the stones were more aligned with uh new left militants. And this debate was carried on. Um, in a very, in a very intense way, in these underground newspapers by these young amateur journalists, and it was really striking to me how passionate a lot of young people were about this, this debate, whether the Beatles or the Stones had the right analysis. But none of that really fit within my my smoking typewriters. So, but so I, I, I ended up using that material in an essay, a standalone essay. That later morphed into the book. So there's a pretty direct connection between my research from from smoking typewriters and and, and the Beatles and the Stones. And yes, I'm inter- and, and people often used to say, you know, there's not a lot new. There's not nothing more to uncover about the Beatles and the Stones, especially the Beatles. Have been their record has been poured over, and the primary sources have been examined. And and then that wasn't. I found that wasn't exactly true. No other scholar had brought to life these underground press accounts that I use in chapter five. So I thought that was kind of neat to bring this resource material to life for readers.
0: And that, I think, is also a really a really interesting um, observation, an interesting historical moment when you have these very earnest, but usually very young and very political kind of writers and activists who are nevertheless looking at what in the previous generation you know, was seen as kind of apolitical political you know sort of pop culture fluff the you know the stuff of popular music mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know the the shift where that is taken so seriously that you know these newspapers these um writers and editors could be debating with total earnestness about. You know, the, the, the political outlook of a band that hasn't actually expressed a political outlook in most cases. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, there's an yeah. interesting, you know, on the one hand, that's an interesting sort of Rorschach, um, you know, media Rorschach where they're kind of reading things into, um, this popular, uh, you know, this popular cultural, cultural products, but also, um, the ways in which Um, things that had been, been seen as fluffy, you know, were now taken so seriously that this is part of, you know, a serious political discourse you have to get right, not just with, you know, your views on, on sort of socialism, the use of force and, and, you know, um, racial hierarchy, but also, you know, whether it's going to be, you know, the Beatles or the Stones.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. Well, at the same time, I guess that these, you know, a lot of pop and rock artists from the nineteen sixties became more, you know, artistically ambitious. You had the, you know, the youth culture movement was really going, and uh, and then people seemed to clam onto these groups as these, as you know, it, and they would take their, the the music so incredibly seriously to the extent that they were looking for. You know, hidden meanings, or you know, doing very close, very careful, you know, textual analysis of the lyrics and so on, and really trying to scrutinize these bands to figure out what they were thinking and you know what was the right direction to to you know to move ahead. You know, what were they trying? Or what message were they trying to give to young people in that day? And in hindsight, it seems a little bit silly and a, a little bit overwrought, especially with, as you said. You know, neither of these bands were were terribly political. You know, the Beatles did identify somewhat with the sort of. Flower power and so on, and then the Stones engaged in just a, you know maybe a little bit of revolutionary or militant posturing, but but none of them really you know embraced uh, you know a, a coherent political cosmology. They weren't really they, they really didn't have a lot to say about you know what they thought young people should be doing in that particular in that particular moment.
0: Yeah, I think I think this book um, s- straddles a really interesting challenge because on the one hand. You want to, you know, you're depicting um, this sort of inherited history of these bands, you know, that there was a rival rivalry that was played out in the press that, as you said, you know, the Beatles uh, aligned with certain political views, the Stones with others. If you were a Beatles person that said certain things about you. Um, Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you're also trying to get below that that kind of media understanding to a little bit more about how the bands functioned as producers of art and as, you know, producers of, of commerce. Um, and kind of how, how in, in the, in the crafting of this book, how do you kind of balance those two, those two narratives, right? The sort of true, but far less known narrative, um, on the one hand and, and then, Um, On the other hand, this narrative that's very familiar, but also very hard to write about. I mean, as you said, you know, the Beatles are a phenomenon so big and so remarked upon, even at their own time, that it's got to be hard as a historian to kind of do history in a serious, careful way about something like that. There's so much material about the Beatles. Um, Right. But but at the same time, ultimately, um, you know, they had what, five or six productive years, six or seven years. You know, not much produced by the Beatles.
1: Well, like they they were remarkably productive during the time that they during were. The time, but but there was there was this period, you know, where where we, they were the Beatles and they weren't recording anything. So no one we don't know enough about the early days. But you know, from sixty two to nineteen seventy, from the time of their first their first record until the time they broke back, they were they were working incredibly hard, putting out a great deal of material. I would say, right, but um. But, but I mean, that's even, what you're driving
0: at. well even, even the most productive pop band is only giving you sort of two sides of an LP once oh, or that's twice right, a year, yeah. you know, like the total number of words that they disseminate. Oh, it's, in yeah,
1: fashion. probably only a couple hours if you, you know, from start, from start to finish, you could probably play the whole Beatles catalog in a
0: few hours, I guess. I, exactly. And but as <laughs> compared to the amount of stuff that was, you know, positively or negatively being, you know, dumped on the culture about what the Beatles mean and who they are. And, you know, on the one hand, you've got an enormous amount of stuff as a historian to shovel through. Um, And on the other Mm -hmm. hand, not that much by the actual producers, you know, to get down to, you know, the, Mm -hmm. the kind of truth Mm -hmm. of their story. And I, well, I want, I want to kind of go back and and talk a little bit about, I I, I
1: I, mean, from a writing perspective, um, you're, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, it would take almost, you could listen to the Beatles catalog in a few hours, but it would take almost a lifetime to read everything that's been written about the Beatles. Um, and, but what I found really interesting and edifying and useful was to go back to the primary sources. So even though this is a, a book that was meant to be maybe for a, a more of a general audience than a scholarly one, uh, I used a lot of the same training that we picked up at Columbia. And so I would, uh, I would go to, not just underground newspapers, but also fan magazines about the groups and, uh, you know, some of the trade music papers from England in the, in the day and, and use those for source material. And then, and I I found a lot of neat stuff that just wasn't appearing in the, in the big biographies. And I think I, I was able to bring some of this new material to life. And that helped me also, like, going to the primary sources really helped me sort of beat out a lot of things. And, and I found myself you know, assembling a familiar narrative but using sources that were a little far flung, uh, and that seemed to benefit the book in my in my view.
0: That was one of the things that I thought was was really striking. Is is there so many moments where the received narrative do, doesn't match very well, or is even almost the opposite? Right? You know the you know the the four kind of good lads from Liverpool, you know, are you know come up pretty rough in their teen years. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know paul mccartney is is portrayed you know as sort of understood to be this you know very sweet guy, but he's you know at least in in some of the stories you have kind of a dirt bag as a kid um you know, and by the other hand, you know by uh, on the other side you've got the stones who have this kind of you know rebellious london swagger um but they're mostly pretty well educated good upper middle class lads who, you know, if it wasn't this, it would have been, you know, being politicians or solicitors or, you know. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, there were, there were class differences within both bands, but, but you're right, you know, with the stones and Mick Jagger, I think a lot of people know he went to the London school of economics, which is a prestigious school. And, and this is a time and, you know, very few, just a, you know, small, small percentage of, of, you know, British kids went on to uh, uh, universities to uh, get university educations, and then Brian Jones was an outstanding student for all of his psychological problems, which became apparent later. Uh, You know, he also you know did very well in his exams and, and could have you know had an elite career in politics and business if that's what he wanted to do. Um, But they got into the blues, and I think they really embraced that blues aesthetic. And I don't think that they're you know they're they're, they're image is sort of near-do-well the bohemians was entirely a put-on i think that they that, you know i think that they engaged in you know I, I think they really immersed themselves in this in this you know blues aesthetic and this lifestyle because that's what that's what they thought was suitable for them in many respects
0: um that sort of brings up another another interesting tension in the book and and really anything that writes about about popular music and popular culture has to deal with the, the sort of 900 pound gorilla of authenticity. Yeah. Um, and you know, this stuff, you know, they're producing in a time before people were as savvy or cynical about the problematics of appropriation and, and just how problematic a term authenticity, uh, can be in a lot of, you know, a lot of the, the reception of the bands had to do with, you know, the, the, um, you know, the, the Beatles as a kind of national treasure, you know, Uh as sort of, um, you know, good, you know, good young lads, especially Uh in the early phase of their career, you know, as opposed to the Stones, you know, initially they're very, you know, uh, you know, Jones in particular seems very interested in authenticity and kind of bringing mm-hmm. you know bringing the Chicago electric blues you know muddy waters yeah. and John Lee Hooker and just sort of transplanting it, translating it to to a young you know English uh, you know British audience and setting. Um, yeah, you know how as a historian, knowing how problematic that kind of stuff is, how do you deal with? with questions of, of, Mm -hmm. you know, these Mm -hmm. folks attempts at authenticity, especially because I know this is a question with too many, too many clauses. Um, but especially because there was such a big media machine around both bands ultimately, Mm -hmm. you know, to market them and to package them, um, as one thing or another. So you have the band trying to produce something. You have something trying to be built around the band to sell this image that they're producing, You know, how do you sift through all of that? And, you know, Uh I would say, you know, you do a very good job of kind of making sense of all of that. But, you know, looking at the primary material, that's got to be a really sort of terrifying quest. (laughs)
1: Well, you know, I think you're absolutely right. People were less savvy on this question of authenticity and also the ways in which bands were marketed. I don't think people realized how much artifice sort of went into that sort of thing back then. Um, but I give both The Beatles and The Stones a lot of credit, and especially The Stones... Or always, you know, acknowledging the debt that they owe to these, you know, pioneers. The, the Beatles were very influenced by uh, uh, Motown and, and, and girl groups, especially, and they made that very clear. And then the Stones were almost, you know, evangelical about, you know, admitting that they, you know, they had grown up on on those, you know, famous pioneering blues artists that you mentioned, and and, and they never. I uh, saw that they were any better than most groups. I think, in fact, they probably seemed to feel a little bit guilty. They had such reverence for people like Bo Didley or Muddy Waters or Howlin' Wolf. And I think they realized that, you know, it was ironic and maybe it unfair that, you know, they were these white people who were interpreting their music. And then, again, as you said, selling it back to, you know, British and American teens. And, and all of, you know, anyone who wanted to could have gone to the, right to the source if they, if they had so desired. And I guess it never occurred to a lot of young, young audiences to do that. But the Beatles and the Stones uh never discouraged anyone, I always acknowledged where they, where their influences came from.
0: That's another thing that I, I think is really interesting about sort of the whole British invasion era is it's so central in American popular culture, right? Both bands, as you just said, are build are drawing on um American musical influences, American cultural touchstones that, you know, they sort of consumed as kids uh in the UK. Uh, in post-war Britain, but then, right, you know, this this sort of, mm-hmm. you know, as as you point out in the book, the, the kind of military language of invasion gets invoked as right. kind of a, a, a reinterpreted version of American, um you know, American artistic production, American music is brought back and then consumed en masse by an American audience and then debated by a kind of, you know all these folks in your, you know, in, in the smoking typewriters kinds of, um, alternative media, um, you know, to what extent were they aware of that kind of, um, you know, circle that the Beatles become a major, you know, the Beatles and the stones are major pieces of American pop culture, you know, whose Mm -hmm. origins are in the UK playing music and stuff whose origins are, you know, that, that sort of feedback loop of culture. Um, yeah. To what extent are they aware of that? To what extent are they are they playing with that? You know, mm-hmm. are they anxious? About I'm that?
1: not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure if I, I fully understand uh, what you're driving at. But in, you know, in order to get your hands on the kind of music that the Beatles and the Stones liked as teenagers and as, as young men, I mean, you had to be a you had to be you had to work hard to find the kind of American music in England that the Beatles were most interested in. You had to sort of search it out in music catalogs and special order and everything else. And so they grew up with, you know, incredible reverence and admiration for a lot of American artists. And then they were so excited by the United States. You know, none of them had, had been here until they came over as, as musicians. And they were just in awe with uh, with New York City and Los Angeles and everything else. Um, and, and, and I think that was when they started to feel that it really sort of made it to make it. And England was one thing, but the, the United States was always the big prize. And so they were always in many ways you know Oriented towards the u s and, and and you know really wanting to have success I know that for sure,
0: but they also um you know it was readily clear to them very quickly, you know after the you know you know they land at the airport and head to Shea Stadium, it yeah. was abundantly clear to everyone you know whether within the Beatles or within the American culture that this was a major event, yeah you know like the sort of sure. the screaming the crying the you know right. um you know it's I mean the like-
1: beatles themselves the the Beatles themselves could never really understand that they they were they you know they were people would ask them all the time, you know what's causing Beatlemania? mania, what is this really about none of none of them were actually you know very sure them, them themselves, but they all and they they knew it was a major event, but they also thought it was going to be a fad they thought And we were I was talking before about how productive they seemed in especially in the early sixties. I and mean, they were working their tails off because they had the sense that, you know, Beatlemania was going to, it was just going to be a couple years and that would be it. And then they, there was no precedent for, for this, you know, pop artists or teen idols growing and maturing and, and having the kind of longevity that the Beatles and the Stones you know, ended up having.
0: Um,
1: Sorry, I guess I cut you off. No, no, no.
0: That's, I mean, that's actually kind of right where I wanted to go is, is you know, I think especially for the Beatles, it's almost like they knew there was a clock on it. Um, They thought the clock would be imposed by the culture. It ended up, I think, ultimately yeah. imposed by their own yeah. kind of moving in, art, in different artistic directions. Um, I think the Stones, it seems like, thought some of the music they were playing was more timeless, at least in origin. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, and, you know, they, but they too sort of said like, you know, I don't want to be up there stomping around singing Satisfaction when I'm an old man. Yeah. You know? And yet, you know, <laughs> coming to an arena near you probably in the next few weeks somewhere. Um,
1: they, they were just in Atlanta a couple of months ago. Yeah. So, so, I'm sure for the last time, but literally, I think it was in June or July they were here.
0: Um, you know, that, that sort of, neither band, I think, could could understand the the way that that generation's pop idols would be allowed to, to kind of age and mature artistically and then just, you know, mature geriatrically. Um, uh uh-huh. But is there a way in which, um, I think particularly thinking of the, the, the Beatles, um, you know, as a historian, you know, how do you try to explain Beatlemania? mania? And kind of what, you know, is this a sort of right place, right time? You know, if, you know, four reasonably talented young men with a, with uh, quirky haircuts could have been anyone at that point. Um, or, you know, was the culture sort of set up for that kind of change? Or are these bands really moving um, sort of the artistic production and mm-hmm. pushing into the culture, whether intentionally or, you know, in some cases, I think, kind of reluctantly.
1: Yeah, uh-huh. um, you know, well, I mean, there are lots of other, you know, bands from that era that didn't have the, the power of the Beatles. So, so, I mean, I think we have to give them a lot of credit for just being, you know, you know very incredible musicians and songwriters and everything else. But their timing was, in fact, impeccable. I mean, there was, you know, uh, uh, the baby boom was just getting underway in the United States and the economy was booming. And, and so this huge team market was emerging just at the same time that the Beatles were, were hitting their creative stride. Uh, and so that, I think that mattered enormously. Uh, and there were certain, like, distinctive features that a lot of other bands didn't have. The fact that they were a coherent group, they were the Beatles, as opposed to a lot of other pop groups, which would have, you know, someone out front, you know, Bill Haley or someone else with a, with a, with a, someone with a flashy stage name and then a backing group behind them it was sort of customary. Commedos were, were, you know, a group and they saw themselves as this, you know, communal gang of artists and I think people saw them that way and yet they all had these distinctive, uh, personalities that young fans could relate to. And then unlike a lot of other groups from their era, they were very, as I mentioned before, um, the speech and the cliches of these Motown girl groups. And so they uh, would, you know, project a kind of tenderness and a vulnerability in their songs that that really seemed to speak to very young teenage girls. And I think we forget sometimes how, you know, young the audience was, the how young the Beatles core audience was when Beale maybe was first getting going. It was, it was, you know, teens and preteens, you know, uh, but they seem to have some way of, sort of addressing them directly, that seem to uh, transfix a lot of these very young girls uh, and, and And those are some of the qualities I think they had that made them you know, really novel for their time and i don 't think looking back, people realize just how unusual and how distinctive you know they were
0: and I mean to so what makes them um, to to push that a little further, what makes them different other than the fact that it 's a you know a, a group that it 's a, a quartet? Um then some of the kind of prefab sort of teen idols you know the fabians and the um um the
1: oh um,
0: mm-hmm. you know you know the ones with the perfectly quaffed you know the the perfectly quaffed hair <laughs> that that sang songs that got spit out of the brill building
1: right um
0: that are what you know God my mother you know and and her pat boone records um <laughs> but you know that's sort of trying you know that's certainly trying to capture that same market and doing it you know they thought relatively well until you saw you know how well the Beatles could capture that market um,
1: yeah um i I guess like, I don't know I don't know if but it, maybe it's maybe they were more musically innovative or maybe they uh were just doing i think they were just a little more quirky and novel than some of those you know prefabricated you know artists that you're mentioning. And, uh, they seemed unusual enough to American audiences, uh, um, and that gave them maybe a special allure, but, but, you know, it's hard to say exactly what accounts for, for Beatlemania. And, and, and it's interesting that, you know, we don't really, we may never know exactly. There was really a mass pandemic and, 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 and uh, there's really nothing, there's not been anything like Beatlemania before or since. And yet I'm not sure anyone has, has come across, has been able to sort of articulate a very precise explanation for what what caused Beatlemania? There are a few more things related to the timing that some people have speculated. You know, for instance, uh, I guess the Beatles came to the U.S. in February of 1964, and John F. Kennedy had been assassinated in November of '63. So some people had some people have argued that you know Americans had gone through a sort of a grieving stage, and even these young teenagers would not have understood you know, in all of its dimensions, what Kennedy's assassination meant, that they would have internalized that something terrible had happened. And then after, you know, a couple months of this, they were ready for a new, for something happy and exuberant and, and exciting. And so their Beatles timing may have, you know, worked to their advantage in, in that respect. Although there was, there was a wave of Beatlemania in England as well, before John Kennedy was assassinated. And Kennedy's assassination would not have meant very much to, to teenagers in England. Mm-hmm. So it was really hard to say. I think it's a. I think it's a great question.
0: Um. And in you know, in looking at the Stones, right? They have to do everything kind of in the wake of the Beatles.
1: Yeah.
0: Right. You know. I mean, initially they think it's going to be fine because they're a London band, and you know, how deep can the bench in Liverpool be? And then all of a sudden, yeah. no, every band has to have you know a Scouse mm-hmm. accent and, um. Mm-hmm you know and and so much of i think the the way you depict the stones early career is is sort of vacillating between emulating the beatles in a lot of different yeah. ways you know i mean you look at some of the early publicity sh- shots and it's not hard to see who they're trying to look like at least a little bit mm-hmm. um yeah. but even kind of professionally when they make the move from um interpreting american blues songs to writing their own work, right? I mean, that's, you have sort of a great story in the book about, you know, that is explicitly um in some ways a product of interaction with Lennon and McCartney, right? They sort of watch yeah. Lennon and McCartney write a song and they're like, wow, you know, these mm-hmm. guys are good. We should try to be sort of like that. But at the same yeah. time, they also have to be constantly, you know, following in the Stone or in, in the Beatles' wake, but also trying to define themselves as something other than the Beatles. Yeah.
1: yeah I mean, there, there are, I, I don't know if it's super well known, but very, very early on when the Stones are first getting going, uh, their manager tried to, you know, style them similar to the Beatles. He had them in matching suits and outfits and their hair was trimmed a bit and they had them smiling in their photo shoots. And there's only a couple photo shoots like this. Uh, and then I guess the story goes that the Stones became, you know, just naturally they were a little more slovenly and, and a little more laid back and relaxed in the performance style. So then their manager, Andrew Oldham, had the idea you know, to consciously, you know, style them as sort of the anti-beetle. So they would not use the season of and they would not. Uh, uh, be, you know, quite as scripted as the Beatles were in their public appearances. And they would be a little more, you know, edgy or rebellious or impolite than they probably actually wanted to be. But then this new image seemed to suit them. And so they they very quickly sort of caught on as as the anti-Beatles, uh, at least in England initially. Uh, but at the same time, they never stopped. They were always preoccupied with how the Beatles were doing. And, you know, when people talk about this rivalry, they can talk about it in terms of, of, you know, Aesthetic credibility or whatever else, but in terms of record sales, the Beatles always outsold the Stones by, by a huge amount, and uh, and and I think that rankled the Stones a little bit. You know, they, I think they were they always measured themselves you know with regard to in regard to the Beatles. That
0: mm-hmm. that the, yeah, there's there's no catching you know the you know the most sort of seminal pop group of the pop era. And so that's got to be a kind of frustrating benchmark yeah. from the beginning. But
1: they, but they, Yeah. And, but they were, you know, it, it, it's a complicated dynamic because, you know, you mentioned the Liverpool London thing, and I, I don't know if American audiences are, are as aware of this, but, you know, back then and to some degree today, you know, people who lived in London would sort of look down on Northern England, kind of the way perhaps, you know, someone in Cambridge or New York city might look down on someone from from the south. I mean these are stereotypes. But there was this sense that uh northern England was sort of, you know, behind the times creatively and culturally from from London and and and, and yet the Beatles came from Liverpool. Uh and then the Stones were sort of perplexed, I think, by that initially. And yet at the same time the Beatles were so oh, geez, I'm getting another call, I'm just gonna, I'm just mm-hmm. gonna ignore it. Um you know, the Beatles had such commercial success and they're really the leading lights of the pop scene. And I think the Stones, you know, found them for a little bit in awe of the Beatles. And at the same time, they had maybe looked down on them a little bit, had been perplexed by them at first. They also were in awe of them and enjoyed being seen in their company and, and measured their accomplishments against what the Beatles were doing. And, and, and that, you know, that, that field of rivalry that was, you know, for the most part, friendly, but it also at times, you know, it, seemed, it was on the minds of I think the Rolling Stones a lot.
0: Um you uh, a minute ago you mentioned um the the Stones um kind of handler their manager um and one of the things I think is really great about this book is it brings it brings into the story a lot of the you know the sort of media soothsayers and managers and the the kind of record business and promotion side of it um can you talk a little bit about some of those key figures that aren't, you know, band members but are nevertheless really sort of central to to the story of these two bands?
1: Sure. You know, well, I, I think it's pretty well known that the Beatles were managed by Brian Epstein, and he was the guy who persuaded them very early on to tidy up their image. And so, so in the earliest incarnation, the Beatles specialized in, you know, playing American rock and roll, and when they were in Germany, they would... But sometimes styled themselves in in leather outfits, and they were known for you know drinking on stage and everything else. and they were more of a raucous act than than uh, than they became and it was the Beatles manager uh, who persuaded them to you know eventually wear suits and bow after their songs and and uh, he choreographed even their stage banter and everything else uh, and that was you know he did that right around the time the Beatles were beginning to have well, he did this right before the Beatles had their their, their big breakthrough. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I think he has a lot of, he, you know, he deserves a lot of credit in that regard. And Andrew Oldham was the guy who managed the Stones in their early days, and I guess I already described how he had the bright idea of portraying the Stones as the anti Beatles, and that image seemed to suit them really well. And of course, for the tabloids, this was a this was, you know, great fodder. This was a great thing. The Beatles and the Stones became seen as rivals, you know, in the, in, the, in the very early 60s. And uh, even when the Beatles were out selling the Stones, you know, if there was a fan pool or a reader poll where the Stones came out on top, that would be, you know, big front page news. And, and journalists were always asking about the supposed Beatles and Stones rivalry. And the bands would try to downplay this. But nevertheless, uh, the idea, the, the, the ways that two dudes were marketed worked to their to their advantage, at least for a while in the early '60s. Mm-hmm. I think by the late, by the mid to late '60s. Certainly, the Beatles found this really silly. They really wanted to leave those teen idol reputations behind, uh, as
0: they did. So, I mean, would it be fair to say that the the Beatles wanted to be, wanted to stop being asked about the Stones before the Stones wanted to stop being measured against the Beatles?
1: Oh, geez, that's hard to say. Um, (laughs) uh, You know, I, I, I think even though, I mean, in fact, they were, for the most part, friendly with each other. I mean, they sincerely admired each other and they enjoyed each other's company, but I don't think that stopped them from, you know, always being cognizant of how the other group is doing and what they were up to. And I, I don't think the group stopped measuring themselves against each other. And uh and so, you know, I, I but but I'm sure they had other things to think about as well. So constantly so being asked about each other may have gotten on their nerves at some point.
0: And it seems like, like both bands at a certain point um Kind of outgrew the initial kind of media, um, world that, the, you know, and, and marketing world that they were, uh, that they came out of. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, sort of yeah. sen- sending away the official reporter for the fan magazine. And I think the Beatles right. end up like shuttering the kind of, you know, the Beatles, you know, fan club magazine. Right. Uh, right. You know, because it's, they seem to be, you know, Pretty quickly, both bands feel sort of stifled by that mm-hmm. know, teen, teen image when they wanted to kind of develop as artists and as you know. Yeah, uh, yeah.
1: It was it was always the hardest for John Lennon and the Beatles. I mean, because he was originally, you know, he went to art school. He was the most bohemian of them all, you know. And he saw them. He saw himself as sort of an iconoclast. And and you know, I think for the Beatles early on, he felt like he had to make. You know certain compromises in order to for the group to be successful, and he was very willing to do that for a point, but after they had had such great success, you know I think he was being trapped in this image where he couldn't talk about what he didn't speak, he didn't say what was on his mind, and he was always on guard because he might cause some sort of controversy, and you know he was so conscripted into the suits and everything else that was that was tough for him, so he was more anxious to leave that behind and and as uh, they eventually did and I think one of the,
0: one of the the stories that was particularly um, interesting to me in, in reading Beatles versus stones was kind of the way you your, you portray uh, Brian Jones, um, you know, who who sort of at least initially has sort of the reverse um, trajectory, right? That he starts as this kind of iconoclast, you know, I'm going to be true to the blues because that's all that matters. And then sort of sees the Beatles' success and sees a taste of their success, and you know, is very quickly the one that says, "Yes, that's you know, that's what I uh-huh. want. I want the adulation, uh-huh. I want the groupies, I want I want the trappings of rock and roll uh, mm-hmm. stardom." You know, never mind this blues, uh, you know, you know, mm-hmm. you, know uh, you know, fealty to the to the truth of of the original art form. Um, mm-hmm. I think that, you know, Jones comes off in, in this book a really um, sort of a, a a difficult character. He's sort of petulant. He's outshined sure. by, you know, uh, Jagger and Richards in his own band. He's narcissistic. There's a lot of talk about, you know, his hair. There's a lot of him talking <laughs> about his hair, um, you know, um, and um, what I find really Interesting about that portrayal of Jones, which is not, I think, kind of the popular understanding of him, um, is it's so starkly different than the way he, in particular, was was kind of received. And I'm thinking here of of um, some of the stuff in, in Patty Smith's memoir, memoir, "Just Kids," um, where she talks about you know almost everyone she bumps into in this kind of bohemian late 60s New York City art world identifies with, you know, is is heartbroken by the death of Brian Jones, but they see him as this very kind of sweet um, artistic soul. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: and I find that um, that disconnect really fascinating, right? That yeah. there's such a you know, so many people, whether it's, you know, artists in the new left or whether it's teeny boppers or kind of the media fanning the flames of teeny bopperdom, they're all, um, they're all so far removed from these actual people, these actual artists, um, that, you know, they're really in some cases dramatically different narratives or, or trajectories that are, you know, carrying along right. this book, you know, there's what the students yeah. are like and what the Beatles are like, and then what everyone thinks they're like. <laughs> and and there's several, sure. you know, there's several groups of everyone and several groups of what they think these, these bands are like. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, you know, I'm, I'm really struck particularly with that in Jones, who was seen, you know, being kind of too young, you know, like you to have experienced either beatlemania or you know yeah. stones you know the yeah there's yeah. no good word like maybe that was their you know that's why they never matched the beatles is there's no good you know stones mania term that's, <laughs> that's quite as catchy <laughs> that may have been what they yeah the, um, yeah but but you know it's yeah. it's hard for me to kind of understand that very earnest um adoration of any of these people um the way that it's depicted in you know the in in your book and in patty smith's book the way that people kind of consume these these you know these artists as very serious artists and thinkers yeah. and stuff you know
1: i mean i think part of it has to do with the fact that you know rock and roll is still you know there is Newer back then, and it was very much understood as, as like youth music. You know, nowadays, you know, it, it, there's so many different types of music, and then there's so many different genres, and people relate to it at different levels at all ages. You know, but back then it was seen as you know truly, uh, uh, you know, the Rolling Stones were seen as, as, as uh, and the Beatles in the late '60s as you know cultural, having you know a special identification and message for young people, and and, and I think people responded to that. Uh, and Brian Jones was a, was a tough figure because, you know, he did have, I think he probably did have you know, a sweet side to a personality and, and as a historian, we're not supposed to, I guess, make a psychological diagnosis. I'm not really trained to do that, but he must have had some kind of, you know, serious personality disorder because he could be also so incredibly, you know, cruel and, and dishonest and almost, you know, psychopathic in some respects. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 you know, he had, had, you know, such a, a tough life at the end. It's hard not to feel a little bit sorry for him. not the way he gets you know, marginalized from his own band, and you know, as bad as he was, it, I don't get the impression that Mick or Keith were terribly kind to of Iron Jones either. You know, I think they kind of preyed upon his his weakness and so So that, so that story is, is, is I think, ultimately kind of a, a sad story where no one comes out looking too good. No, uh, you know, nice. but he had, he, but he looked, you know, until he was ravaged by drugs. He was, you know, a very handsome guy and he was charismatic and a great. Sense of fashion and style and everything else, and I think that's part of what you know. People like Patty Smith were, were responding to. Part of it was just that you know their sexuality and their charm and their their, their charisma is projected through the music. That's something that a lot of people were were, they, they were responding to. I think.
0: Mm-hmm. Do Do you think it's this also speaks to that you know kind of as a as a historian of the '60s that that kind of ability to connect to the to these artists as sort of spokesmen of a generation and for a certain changing outlook in the world, like, is that just less possible in other generations? And it's, again, I get sort of back to the question of timing, but, you know, can, yeah. it's hard, at least yeah. for me to conceive of what, you know, what a Beatles or a Stones would look like coming out now, or what it, what right. an analog would have been even, you know, in the the kind of '80s and '90s when I was growing up, you know, um, you know, the yeah for a band to be kind of as popular yeah. as either of these bands, but also taken so seriously yeah. artistically and and politically, seems almost impossible, right? You know, no nobody was yeah, asking I don't about know. How, yeah. how you know the new kids on the block felt about the invasion of Grenada. <laughs> Um, although, like now, I really want to find that interview because that would. Just yeah, that be, was gonna, I was going to say there's an much. article in that for sure. Um,
1: you know, uh, well, it's a little funny thing that sometimes if people compare. You know, certain boy bands whenever a boy band is popular at a particular moment, Justin Bieber, or One Direction, or whatever, they'll get compared to the Beatles, and those people don't have a really good, you know, fame of reference. Um. You know, I'm just speculating here, but, you know, I guess what I was trying to suggest earlier is just that the, the audience for rock and roll is, since it's so segmented nowadays, and it, it, I don't think we're going to have one band that's going to speak to young people the way the Beatles and the Stones did. You know, young people, you know, is, is a big group. Um, I just, there's certain, I think in certain subcultures, probably people, you know, glom onto bands that matter, you know, a great deal to them, whether maybe in punk rock or indie rock or whatever else, and they experience, Artists with you know an incredible amount of you know intensity and that's one of the great things about rock and roll is that people you know have those relationships with the artists they care about, but I just don't see a group having the the kind of broad impact of, of the Beatles Again, I just can I don't see how it could happen in this in this
0: current era. just the the amount of cultural diffusion and the 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 number of platforms make it impossible for anybody yeah. to reach so many
1: yeah people. that's a better way thank you yeah um I think that's a better
0: way of saying it. Sure. Um, you know, I, want to go back, um, to, to some of these other people, um, and, and, and the sort of the business side of, of these bands for a minute, you talked about kind of the early days and sort of, um, Alden and Epstein. And of course, lots of people have, have written or talked about kind of the importance of George Martin, particularly on, on kind of the sound of the Beatles, um, in, in the sort of early to mid years. um, but I'm interested also in kind of, uh, what you do with, uh, particularly in the, in, in chapter six, Wheel Dealing in the Pop Jungle, um, where yeah. you talk about kind of the Beatles attempt at kind of controlling their own, the, the business side of things and creating Apple mm-hmm. records and, and the Stones kind of relationship with, with, um, you know, the sort of dubious impresario, Alan Klein. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what can you say about sort of that side of the story? Because that I think is one that that people largely, yeah. you know, don't know until they, you know, until they engage with your book.
1: Well, it's, it's sad to me to think that you know part of the impetus for the Beatles' breakup was a feud about money, you know, and I think I know of course there were other things at work, you know. uh, So you can't just isolate one thing to explain a phenomenon It's complicated, you know, why the Beatles broke up. But a lot of it had to do with their, their, uh, the group is divided over whether or not they wanted Alan Klein to be their manager. And, and, you know, he had a reputation as a sort of shark-eyed money man who had, you know, made a big impact in the music business, uh, getting really good deals for his clients, but he was also pretty widely known to be you know, ethically challenged or unscrupulous or whatever else. And, 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 uh, so he took the, he was, you know, uh, he had managed the stones for a brief period or no, for a long period. He, it took a long time for the stones to extricate themselves from him, but you know, he really ripped them off. He controlled the copyrights of a lot of, uh, of a lot of their songs and, and he got the stones to sort of sign over their, their, uh, their rights to these songs without really knowing exactly what they were doing. And then he set his sights on the Beatles. Uh, and that caused a huge division in the group. Uh, John persuaded George and Ringo to want to go with Alan Klein, and, and Paul did not want to go with him. He wanted to go with his wife's father, with <laughs> her manager, and that was unacceptable <laughs> to the other three. <laughs> and um, so uh, and that, was one, that was one of the things they just couldn't reconcile. I always thought that was kind of sad. I mean, these, you, you know, they uh, you know, they had, I don't know if that was, you know, it just, that always sort of bothered me a little bit. It so was the the, study, study squad was about money was part of the reason for their downfall.
0: Yeah, I mean the the kind of the conventional and I would argue fairly sexist argument that it was Yoko that broke up the Beatles is wrong. It was actually Alan Klein. Yeah. Uh, well, but I well, think played a very if, negative
1: role too, though. I I, yeah, I don't know if it's I don't know if it's sexist or not. I mean, I she she endured a lot of sexism for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also think she had a pretty pernicious influence on the group dynamic. So. Mm-hmm. But,
0: I mean, it, it, it's interesting because I think, you know, she came out of this kind of, you know, Japanese avant-garde art world, um, which was something that I think, you know, it seems like John was very drawn to mm-hmm. in a way that the rest of the Beatles were like, you know, boy, do we not care about this nonsense. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, you know, I'm... I'm not taking a side on either on, you know, uh-huh. on either side there. Cause you know, happily it's not my period. So I don't have to, um, but, um, you know, I am, I am really struck by how much of this, as you said, you know, very sadly in the case of the Beatles, how much of this is a, is a money story ultimately that this is, you know, this is not only a, a story of, you know, counterculture politics read through, um, you know, read through these bands, which is kind of, as you said, how you got to the project, right? That, you know, Mm -hmm. you're, you're reading these battles over, which is, you know, which, which is the better band or which is the more politically important band in independent, uh, press of the late sixties. Um, but it's also very much a story of kind of, uh, late mid to late 20th century, um, mass capitalism, Mm-hmm. You know, and in some ways, you know, if 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 you want to find a way that the Stones win, right, you know, I, I, I remember seeing um, as a, you know, in high school or in college, an article in, I think, the Wall Street Journal or some similar publication about kind of the brilliant business machine that was the yeah. Stones touring show. Yeah. Um, and I'm thinking like, you know, oh, maybe they, you know, in, in reflecting back on <laughs> both this book and and that article from long ago, I'm like, oh, maybe they did win you know, in, well, you know, in a certain way. But as, you know, and, and and that shift that happened, right? I mean, by the, you know, by the 80s and 90s, Jerry Garcia was selling $100 ties. Yeah. You know, the, 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 yeah. the sort of commercialization was, was simultaneously both always there and also, mm-hmm. you know, rejected or resisted or ambivalently embraced. Uh, um, made mm-hmm. by the artists themselves, but certainly you know the Kleins, the Epstein's, the Martins, uh, Ray Coleman at Melody Maker, right? These are yeah. all people who are not confused about the fact that both of these bands are businesses. That's right. Yeah, no, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah.
1: And and the Beatles, no were the groups themselves really concerned about it. I mean, they would sort of time their releases in ways that they thought they could make the most amount of money. They put out a record, you know, right before Christmas, and. And, you know, I think I quote in the book, Paul McCartney talking about how, you know, the idea that the Beatles were some kind of anti-bourgeois band or anti-capitalist force. was just a terrible mess. They were, as we mentioned before, really intent on making as much money as they possibly could while the iron was hot and that accounted for a lot of their productivity. And there's some very funny uh, quotes in the book from John Lennon, a, a press conference is talking about how great it was. He makes all this money. People <laughs> would want to ask him all sorts of things. And he's like, we're just in for the money. You can know? well, <laughs> go. And, and uh, you know, what lessons are you leaving for American kids? And it's how to make money quick. And what are you going to do with your money? He's like, we're going to spend it. And he was just really excited about all that stuff.
0: And that's one the, of the sort of great things about, you know, the, the Beatles' ability to kind of, you know, tell a really crass truth like that. And then, you know, sort of the media and their audience is like, Oh, that (laughs) joker, you know, Oh, John Paul, they're so funny. And they're like, pick up the check, you know?
1: (laughs) Yeah, sure. Um, Sure. You know, I, I saw the Rolling Stones in only once in I think the mid nineties, I was, I was, uh, at Michigan State at the time and they played, at the stadium, and it was a hundred dollars, which in in ninety four it's just nineteen ninety four just seemed like an astronomical amount to spend for a ticket, and I was so angry, but you know that the stadium was just about a mile and a half away from where I live, so I couldn't really not go you know <laughs> so, you know, we went to the show, but uh each a hundred dollars back then seemed. Like a amount to spend for a, for a rock show.
0: Right, now, and now, a hundred dollars wouldn't wouldn't get you a nosebleed to a star. So.
1: <laughs> sure, sure. I understand the value of the dollar has yeah. changed, but <laughs> it, 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 it's still, but it, it's. And I've always found the. The way the stones have you know marketed themselves in recent years a little bit a little bit tacky. I think we're about the same age and might be just a little bit older than you, but but you know, back in the in when we were in high school when they had the steel wheels tour and there mm-hmm. was, you know, you could everything everything you could put a Rolling Stones logo on had a, a Rolling Stones you know, logo. Boxer shorts and keychains and everything else. Uh trading cards, all that stuff.
0: Yeah, they were sort of at the vanguard of that kind of just we will see yeah. anything.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, and, and you know. And that's, that's uh, I, don't, I should have maybe I shouldn't have read some of that, but I thought it was kind of gacky even then until now especially. You know, and, I tend to feel that way.
0: And that's something that I think is really interesting about the the epilogue of the book, um, where of course one of these bands ends up pressed in amber and, you know, I think it's April nineteen seventy. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, with the the passing first of John Lennon, it becomes kind of, you know, the Will there ever be a reunion tour? Um you know, becomes impossible. Um, but Mm -hmm. you know, the stones just keep chugging along and, um, as a historian, does that, does that kind of change how the band is seen? So the fact that you can still go see some version of the stones, you know, you can still see Mick, you know, Mm -hmm. sort of strutting around on stage. Um, does that change the meaning retroactively yeah. of, of what they were doing in 1964, five, six? in a way that the Beatles the
1: you can't, I, yeah. you know. I think it changed the debate about the Dukes, you know, to the extent that, you know, the, you know, the Beatles were still very much sort of, you know, near their prime when they disbanded and then they never recorded it together again. They never shared a stage again. They just sort of split up. Whereas, you know, the Stones had a, you know, a great period in the early seventies where they were really at the top of their game. But, you know, but the fact that they kept going into the eighties and nineties and, you know, as recently as today, uh, you know, putting out, you know, sort of lackluster records without very many good songs, but then they tour, and their tours were sort of golden oldies packages. They they wouldn't really push any new material. They just played the same songs from the 60s and 70s, and they, they didn't even really play around much with their own arrangements. They would play their own songs almost exactly as they sounded on the record, mm-hmm. you know, without ever pushing any new material. And in that respect, I think they kind of diluted their catalog and uh, they may be a little bit less important as a result. I've never, you know, i really been a big fan of, of nostalgia acts. I would have loved to have seen this Stones in the late '60s or early '70s. Mm. Um, but I think maybe that maybe maybe that may have shaped their their well, legacy for some people. Other people would have a different view, and in, and in, in, you know, not begrudge the, the fact that they put out so much music. And, and you know, the records have never been bad for the most part, but, but they certainly haven't you know measured up to what they were capable of, you know, when they were at their best.
0: That that leads me to, you know, a, a short series of of closing and highly um, unfair questions. Um, you know, the first is do you have a favorite song or album for each band? You know, where oh, okay. do you see sure. the kind of you know the height of what they did best?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I would say I think A Day in the Life is my favorite you know, Beatles composition. And, you know, uh, I go back and forth between Revolver and Sgt. Pepper is my favorite Beatles album. Uh, and then for the Stones, I really like the period with Mick Taylor. So from like 68 to 1974, I love all those records. And so I guess Excel on Main Street might be the, the Rolling Stones record I go back to an awful lot. Uh, the sticky fingers let it bleed i like all those records too um and I, just, I have a hard time choosing just one but it's, it's that genre. It's, it's the it's the beatles in their when they're moving into their psychedelic era so like 65 to 67 and the stones in like 68 to 74 those are the periods i like the most
0: and um you know the question that that some version of always gets asked at an academic conference which is um, you know, thank you for writing the thing you did. Why didn't you write this other thing that I just thought of, um, which is, you know, where would you put, you know, some other bands or what would be other bands that you think could be part of this story? I mean, I think the dichotomy you have with the Beals and Stones, yeah. you know, they're clearly the right choice. They're clearly sort of the one and two for, I think what you're, what you've done with them, but you know, where would the who go? You know, you, know,
1: you know, I should preface all this by saying, you know, I'm I'm not a, a rock critic. And then, you know, as, as you know, you read the book. I mean, I don't write so much about, you know, aesthetic judgments in the book because that's just not my my strength. I'm not a musician mm-hmm. either. And so I just don't talk about it as well as I can talk about some of the okay. historical stuff. But I like, you know, I like the kinks. I think, there's, I think, mm. uh, you know, you can make a good case for the kinks being one of the great acts of the era when they were in their pride. Uh, and I love the Who as well. So you know, there was so much competition between these bands and cross fertilization—the Beatles and the Stones and the Kinks and the Who, the Beach Boys. You know, and and there was such a great time for music. Um, And I think of you know, if we focus you know over much on the Beatles and the Stones, we can we can lose lose track of that fact. Uh, but Bob Dylan too, and, and these all these bands exerted you know quite a bit of influence upon each other. And I think they also. uh <laughs> Uh, this sort of sense of competition or this fertilization that is going, you know, help the galvanize these bands to try to continue to to, to do their very best work.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, not as, yeah, I, I don't ask it as like an aesthetic question necessarily. We'll leave that to, you know, rock critics and, you know, musicologists and, uh, you know, people <laughs> with secret knowledge I don't have, but, but I, it does seem to me that that and and this comes out in the book in in some ways, even though it's really a sort of Beatles and Stones uh, project, that there are these other you know pieces of this musical lands, this sort of you know musical cultural landscape that are um, you know that are also echoing some of the same themes and um, bouncing off each other, and you know that there's you know these two bands are sort of at the heart of. A larger pantheon in a moment of real kind of cultural and musical foment um, mm-hmm. and I guess you know i I, I want to you know thank you for taking the time to to talk with me and 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 to do this um, and um, you know i I encourage people to. Uh, run out and buy, you know, a minimum of nine to fifteen copies. I think is probably the right the right number. Now that it's that's, a paper,
1: that's probably not going to happen.
0: Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, um, but um, you know, I think that this is, you know, I, I say, so I think, you know, I think it's a, a terrific read. I think you really get a lot, um, a lot more than kind of the bands. You get a lot of, you can almost do the story of the '60s, you know with these two bands as, as, as an anchor, um, you know, a lot of the, you know, cultural and, and, um, political developments are, you know, reflected by, or, um, you know, reflected by what's going on with these bands or can be read into what's, what's, what's happening with them. Um, well, but the question, of course, or right, go ahead.
1: Oh, I was going to say, I appreciate you saying that. I, uh, I, uh, it was, uh, I had a lot of fun writing it, and I was, I was enjoying talking with you. So I'm sorry, but I caught you off.
0: Oh no, I, I was just going to, you know, the question I have to ask, but I suspect you won't answer. Of course, is, you know, Beatles or Stones?
1: <laughs> uh, you know what? For you all, uh, you know, when, I, when this book first came out a couple of years ago, people would always ask, and I was thinking I didn't really want. I tried so hard to be. You know, as impartial as I possibly could, because I wanted to write a, a, a joint biography of the two groups without, you know, focusing too much about, you know, uh, on without really delving into which group I thought was better. But everyone would always ask, and I would—I always didn't want to answer. But uh, I spent a few years, so it's the Beatles. I like the Beatles a lot better. Interesting.
0: Okay, um, I thought. Yeah. But I that was not my bold. guess. Having read it, so oh
1: good. Uh, so, well, uh, you, I was when people say this, they couldn't tell. Yeah, I, 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 that's, that I mean I wasn't I expect what I was going for.
0: Yeah, I didn't have a strong bet either way, but I was I was uh-huh. suspecting stones.
1: Um well people who know me well think I would think it would be the Stones. Maybe it's something about my personality <laughs> or something like that. But uh but uh
0: yeah, you know, um, you rarely you, you reply when you speak and then bow at the end. So <laughs> <know>. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Um,
1: um Yeah, but I'm glad but I truly do love both bands, especially as I said, the Stones in that in that in that era. So but but I I, uh, I listen to the I listen to the Beatles a lot more.
0: Um, well, great. So, Thank you so much um, for, for talking to me and for doing this for um, the New Books Network. Um, and uh, uh, once again, thank you very much.
1: Well, thank you so much, Matt. I really enjoyed talking with you after all this time, and uh, thanks for your interest. It was a lot of fun.